Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Australian Jazz and Group Podcast. My name's David Galea and it's great to welcome you back. This podcast, as we said in the first episode, is designed to try and bring attention to the wonderful jazz and groove composers that we have here in this country. So if you'd like to be featured on this podcast, please send an email to australianjazzandgroovepodcast at gmail.com or get in contact on Facebook at australianjazzandgroovepodcast at facebook.com. So what do we have coming up in this episode? Well, on this second episode, we'll be talking to our special guest, Dr. James Whiting, who recorded a Zoom interview with me from his home in Las Vegas. He'll be talking about his challenges in moving from Australia OS to the United States and how his formative years in Australia really put him in good stead for the move. We'll also be talking to him about his recording, Hard Mints, that he released back in 2015, and we'll be listening to tracks from that recording as well. We'll also hear a track from Brisbane pianist and composer and all-round legend Steve Newcomb from his release The Caterpillar Chronicles. And then to top it off, this episode we'll hear from two artists, first Melbourne and Australian drumming legend Darren Ferrugia and a track from his record Seeds. And then we'll finish off with a beautiful track from Melbourne master bass guitarist Chris Hale from his recording Sylvan Coda. We have so much to get into today, but first of all, let's visit a classic from the groove merchant, Jackie Ozarski. Unfortunately, Jackie passed away back in 2008, but his music lives on in his recordings. Many of you may have had the chance to see Jackie play as I did at the famous Sydney Harborside Brasserie and the Brisbane Jazz and Blues Bar back in the 90s. So much groove in that 60s Fender Jazz bass that Jackie used to carry around. So let's listen to this killer groove on a track entitled Smile Machine from the album Family Law.
That was Smile Machine from Jackie Ozarski's 1994 recording, Family Law, Jackie Ozarski and the Grand Masters. Jackie truly was a master of funk. Well, now we'd like to move into an album by Brisbane legend Steve Newcomb, piano player and composer. And this is an album of his called The Caterpillar Chronicles, which he released in 2013. And the song we're going to listen to is entitled Song for Ava. Now, really, this is just an excerpt of this album, because when you listen to the album from beginning to end, you realize that there is an overall picture to this composition. This is not just an album of separate tracks. Each one is related to each other. So go out and buy the album at stevenewcomb.com.au and you can download it from him. But for now, let's have a listen to Song for Ava. Thank you. 
So that was Song for Ava from Steve Newcomb's 2013 release, The Caterpillar Chronicles. Such a beautiful display of compositional mastery there. And as we said, go and buy the album, listen to it from beginning to end so you can get the big picture as to what Steve was going for when he wrote that album. But now we'd like to introduce you to our very special guest. He is a vibraphonist, a composer, an arranger, a musical director and a theatre performer. And he is also a doctor. I'm talking about Dr. James Whiting, who now resides in Las Vegas and formerly from Brisbane. So let's get familiar with his music. Let's listen to a track from his 2015 release, Hard Mints. This track is entitled August Rain, and then we'll have a chat to James. So this is August Rain.
Well, let's now welcome to the Australian Jazz and Groove podcast, James Whiting. Thanks for having me, Dave. I'm glad to be here. It's my pleasure, mate. And you're currently residing in Las Vegas, and you're also now a doctor. Can you tell us how that happened? Okay, well, the the doctor, I have a doctorate in musical arts uh, with a specialization in percussion. It was what I decided to do that would bring me over to the United States. So back in about 2014, I'd felt like I'd kind of reached the ceiling or was reaching the ceiling of what I was doing in Brisbane. I love what I was doing. I was very lucky to perform to be performing basically full time in in a bunch of various uh, avenues. But I came to the realization that it wouldn't be long before that was it. You know, and I'd kind of I was I was young. I was twenty three, twenty four. Um, you know, where do I kind of go from here? Is this what I'm going to do for the next you know thirty, forty years or whatever? Uh, and I was interested in, in doing some things that might be a little little different. So decided to look towards the U.S. as I've had a long relationship with uh, for various things, recording being one of them, and uh, was interested in doing a, a doctoral degree in percussion specifically and started looking at schools and then found a school and, and uh, got accepted and then spent the, the better part of uh, three and a half or four years doing the degree and it was a lot of a lot of hard work but I really enjoyed I really enjoyed the ups and downs of it yeah very cool well I'm interested to really find out what the transition like was for you going from Brisbane to the states I know that as a first year uni student the great trumpet player John Hoffman said to us as students he said you know there's just as many average players in America as there is great players. And that was encouraging for us to hear because we just assumed that everyone over there was amazing. Is that what you've found to be the case now that you've lived there in Las Vegas for a while now and you've become part of the scene there? Absolutely. And to piggyback off that, actually, there are many musicians in Australia that I would still prefer to play with than some of the ones that I've that I've met here. Um, it, it's definitely not a situation of there's you know, the players over here are better. There's just more of them, but there's also more average players. There's more mediocre players um, in in Australia. And, I, you know, this is where I'm thankful for it. I feel like the coursework that I did in my degrees at the conservatory in jazz and then in conducting and, and orchestral music, I feel in some ways were more difficult than some of the coursework that I've seen here uh, because you're trying to attain an education in an art form that that isn't historically Australian. It's an art form that's historically American that's borrowed or stolen from other cultures, you know, Afro-Caribbean, Afro-Brazilian, Afro, you know, whatever, African, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, there are a lot of players in Australia that uh, that I would prefer to play with, actually. Um, so I yeah, there isn't there isn't there isn't a difference in in quality, in my opinion. There's just you know more population here, you know, so you get more of everything. Yeah, that's really cool to hear, and of, and of course that's true. There's great players all over the earth, isn't there? Well, let's talk about your 2015 release, Hard Mints. And man, I have a real soft spot for this album because I remember having a conversation about this album with you well before you recorded it. I think it was at the Brisbane Jazz Club, either at a set break or after the gig. And you said, I really want to do this recording. Do you remember having that conversation at all? 
I do remember that conversation, and I'm actually going to correct you on a couple of things. We did have a conversation at the Brisbane Jazz Club about it, but I think that's after I'd made some decisions. The For me, the real decision, and you're the culprit for this, man. This was all you're doing. Really? It, we Yeah. We played a wedding gig in January of 2014 uh, that was for a friend. The, we- the wedding was a friend of mine. She asked me to, I was a guest at the wedding and she also wanted me to uh, handle the music. So I put together a band together. It was uh, you playing bass, obviously. I played drums. Tamara Callahan sang. Dave, Dave Splicer played keys. And I th- think, I don't know if there was another member. There could have been. Wasn't there a tenor player? Was it Ben Byrne? I, I, I think Ben Byrne was playing tenor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds about right. And I because of the venue and when they wanted the music program, they didn't want people, they didn't want the band kind of coming in after the, the reception had started and setting up and then after we played, leaving and, and it being kind of messy, I guess, aesthetically. So I said to you, hey, man, I'll just grab your bass cab and I'll bring it back to you tomorrow or whatever. And so when I came to deliver your bass cab back to you the following day or the, or in the following week, we were, that's when we were talking about it. And I said, man, you know, I'm, I'm wanting to do this recording. And you asked me, you said, who do you want to play on it? And I said, well, I've already spoken with the, the drummer, John Weekend, and I want him to play on it again. Uh, and I said, I, you know, in a, in a perfect world, I would love to have someone like Jeff Keezer play keys on it. And you said, well, why don't you ask him? And I just kind of, and which, you know, and I had him, I had him as a contact. I had him as a mutual friend, uh, from Joe Locke. Cause Joe obviously does a lot of play with him, but that plays a lot with him. And I just kind of went, okay, all right, well, you know, I'll reach out to him. And, and I did. So I reached out to him and I said, hi, you know, hi, Jeff, we've met, you know, a couple of times, uh, you know, I'm putting this recording together at the end of this year and I'd love for you to play on it. John's going to play drums. I'm still thinking about a bass player. Um, uh, would you be interested? And he wrote back within a day or two and was like, absolutely. Um, these are the dates that I'm free. I happen to be in New York doing a residency for Chris, uh, Chris Bodie at, at Blue Note. So that works really great with my timeline. Just let me know what dates work and, and whatever. Um, and I was blown away by that because I hold Jeff in such a high pedestal. You know, he's he's like my John Coltrane. He's my Miles Davis. He's my, you know. Um, so I I was really blown away by that. And between him and, and John Weekend, they mutually recommended the bass player Richie Goods they're like you know what Richie would be great for this music if you haven't thought about a bass player yet and they were absolutely right Richie was perfect for for what I was going for on that recording um oh yeah and he sounds absolutely killer too oh dude Richie's monster um and then I really wanted Jonathan Kreisberg to play guitar and and he was like yeah count me in and and John was great Jonathan was was great actually the week before the recording when I got into New York, he was like, Hey man, you want to come on over and we can like play through these tunes. I got a couple of ideas I want to lay on you. And, and I altered some of the, the tunes or, you know, whether it was harmonic content or kind of where the melody went or whatever it may be 
under his kind of advisement because he's like, you know what, I think this would be really cool if you did this. And it, Jonathan was such a huge, uh, huge inspiration and and was very hands on um, in in the sessions, which I was very grateful for. All, all the guys were. They were like, you know, hey, I'm thinking this here. And what was what was great for me uh, is that that particular recording, I wrote all that music with those players in my mind, knowing who I had playing who was going to play that music I wrote it in a way to allow freedom for what I assumed they would probably do and about 95% of the time I was right they did some like either exactly or close to what I imagined they would probably do in that little spot for example in the track hard mints the the piano solo that it just drops out to just solo piano literally on the chart you've played the chart Literally on the chart, it just has uh, it just has open piano solo. One measure that's just an open repeat that says open piano solo, f- free to do whatever you want. And on the recording, that's what that's what Keezer did. You know, we launched him in with now go for it, and he went for it, and 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 you know made a very compositional approach to that solo that was absolutely stunning that was that was actually one of the few moments in the session where I looked up at the other players because the rest of the time I just kind of had my head down being like oh my god I'm playing with all these ridiculously you know well-known and talented musicians I gotta hold my own that was you know a minute in that day where I could look up and just take it all in and go holy Keys is playing my music and he's playing the hell out of it, you know? Um, and I could kind of just relax for a second and appreciate it like a spectator rather than trying to play the role of, you know, the, the producer and the band leader and the, you know, whatever. Um, yeah. Well, that sounds like a great place for us to sit back and have a listen to hard mints. So let's do that. And we can hear exactly what you've been talking about. Thanks, James.
Wow, that was hard, man. It's a very cool track, man. So thinking about the session, was it a little intimidating to put this music in front of these dudes? Like thinking, well, I'm getting Jeffrey Keezer to play this music. This is heavy. And as you mentioned, you just had that moment where you're able to look up and take it all in. Was it a little bit of, was there a bit of intrepidation at all on your part with these, let's call them heavies on this session playing your music? I, I know I would have found it quite nerve wracking. Yeah, it was, it was, it was intimidating, but I think, you know, I think I held myself together pretty well. People always tell me that they're like, man, you, you really <laughs> look like, you know what you're doing or you had control of that situation. I said inside paralysis, like I just, I was terrified, uh, but I guess I got a good poker face or something, which, you know, good thing I live in Vegas, but I don't gamble. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was. It was intimidating. We did we did one, I guess, like rehearsal on the Friday. We recorded on a Monday and a Tuesday, and we did one rehearsal in Machico Studios uh, on uh, I think it's on Forty Eighth Street in Manhattan in New York. Uh, on the Friday beforehand, we just got together. We basically just read the charts down, went through them, made sure that stuff was making sense, um, and that you know make whatever marks any comments any whatever if i need to go and fix some charts up then i have the weekend to go and fix them up and i'll reprint them for monday and whatever um and i remember that that rehearsal i think was more stressful in the recording for me because that that was a a supercharged session in a way to me it was just trying to blast through all the charts in about 90 minutes or 90 minutes to two hours just blast through all of it, make sure we cover all of it, make make sure it's all there, as well as these are, you know, four out of those five guys, three out of those, three out of those four guys, sorry, um, are listening to me play probably for the first time. So I need to make sure that I don't come in and I'm stepping all over myself, you know, um, so that 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 was intimidating, but I just kind of you know got to work and went well you know, I I committed to doing this and I'm I'm the leader and this is what we're doing and and uh, you know very appreciative of of the experience and but yeah them bringing it to life was was mesmerizing um, and I was able to take a slightly more time as I said when we actually got to the studio to do the sessions on the Monday and Tuesday I had a little bit more time to appreciate what was happening around me rather than just kind of have my head down and just be like, all right, just make sure you're doing your stuff really well. Very cool. So let's talk now about your compositional process. Say you're about to write an album like Hard Mints or maybe the next album that you write. What happens? Do you go to the vibraphone, which we could probably say is probably your mother tongue, or would you go to the piano? And is there a difference if you were to write on the vibraphone is it different to if you write on the piano? I'm assuming there would be a difference. Absolutely, there's a difference. And uh, this might even just cut your question straight off. Most most of my composing and arranging and orchestrating all happens on the piano because I have more range to deal with. I have more dexterity and, you know, you know, more fingers than I do mallets to get to things. Um, I do every so often compose or, or do some kind of compositional work or, or orchestrational work on vibraphone, 
but I generally only do that if it if I'm intending for what I'm doing to become a solo vibraphone work. So I'm there actually figuring out the technical aspects of the instrument. I think subconsciously uh, the reason why I've always been at the piano is because I'm, I don't feel encumbered by the technical restrictions on the vibraphone, whether it be the amount of mallets I have or the fact that, you know, if you put the pedal down, then things are going to ring out and then you've got to do all this mallet dampening to make sure the stuff doesn't ring, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I could go on. Um, so yeah, everything's at the piano, but that makes it difficult sometimes, uh, to translate things across the instrument, even though they're laid out the same way, you know, black and white keys on a piano. It's the same thing with vibes and all mallet instruments. They're just not black and white. they they'll be one color. Um, depending on whatever the, the material is, whether it's wood, marimba, xylophone, or, or uh, metal for, for vibraphone. Um, there'll be some things that don't quite, that don't work or they're, they're way more difficult to handle on the vibraphone than they are on, on the piano. Here's a perfect example. The, the opening statement on the hard mints track is attainable on the vibraphone, but because I only have four mallets, it's, it's hard to get to. There's this like big jump that I like, I have to do this big leap with my, um, with my outside left hand mallet. That's, kind of uncomfortable. So I got to make sure that that's a smooth leap. Whereas on the piano, it's all done in a hand. You know, so that's just a, just a small example. Um, but to piggyback off that, something that I've been working on recently, just kind of quietly, and I've put a couple of videos up on my Instagram about it, is taking tunes from like the 70s and 80s. Um, so generally kind of like pop rock tunes, stuff like Toto, Rush, um, The Beatles, um, uh, The Eagles, stuff like that, and making solo vibraphone versions of those, solo vibraphone arrangements of those songs. One, because I just love that music. That's actually my favorite music, that kind of like what's been labeled yacht rock era of music. Um and, and adapting it to the vibraphone because there is a countless amount of musical and technical considerations when putting it on the instrument that were obviously never a thought in the mind of when they were written because they were never written to be a solo vibraphone arrangement. Um, so that's the, that's the fun I get to have uh, figuring out how to put it on the instrument and, and make it work. Um, so, yeah, I most of the time composing on the piano and then I, that I translate where possible. Well, I have to say, James, I've known for a long time you've been addicted to Yacht Rock. The constant Toto references give you away there, mate. So what's on the horizon for Dr. James Whiting? Obviously, some things are limited with the current COVID-19 crisis, but putting that aside, do you have any musical plans or goals that you would like to achieve, either long-term or short-term? Well, that's a, that's a loaded question. Um, well, first of all, I like I've always been a kind of, you know, make lemonade out of lemons person. Um, and and this whole uh, world shutdown thing that's gone on while it's been depressing, I've kind of I, I fairly early on, I made my peace with it as soon as I uh, discovered how it was going to affect or not affect 
my residency here in the US. Um, I made my peace with it and went, okay, well, how can I best utilize this time? So that's where the podcast was, was born from. Um, it was something that I was, that I'd been interested in doing quite some time. I was like, okay, well, I have the time to do it now. And I have something much like yourself. I have something meaningful to contribute to the community. Uh, so I'm going to do it. Uh, and so I started that I've been slowly writing bits and pieces of some new tunes for a potential album that is really no more than just ideas right now. Uh, I've, I've written some of the tunes, in some cases, fully fleshed out melodies and, and, and harmonic stuff and whatever. But uh, some of the tunes I know are going to have lyrics on them. So I'm working on my lyric writing right now. And to, to actually divert a little bit from the, the style or genre of the other two albums... This is something, this is an album that I, that I feel right now, or I'm intending right now, is going to head somewhere in down the way of being influenced heavily by jazz, but is more in a kind of 70s, 80s rock thing. So what comes to mind musically for examples is like, if you've ever heard the band Pages, which is what Richard Page and, and the other guy had before Mr. Mr., um, and like some early Toto stuff that's, you know, it's, it's, it's rock stuff. Um, there's actually a great, yeah. And it's all killer stuff. And there's a, there's a great band here in town in Vegas called Santa Fe and the fat city horns who are, uh, they're a 15 piece band, six piece horn section, um, four, five guys in the band sing. So three are dedicated vocalists. The other two double on either synth or, guitar there's another keyboard player there's a bass player a percussionist and a drummer um and they do covers of stuff and they also do their own original material and the best way to describe them is think like tower of power meets earth wind and fire meets toto meets a salsa band meets a funk band meets a whatever and so that is kind of where my influence of the direction of the album is going and i've even got in my mind one of those vocalists as as probably the person I'm going to ask to to do the vocals on this album once I you know get down to to finishing the lyrics, um, so that's something that I that I have kind of uh, marinating in my mind right now of of what to do. Uh, I'm looking to it's it's funny before everything kind of locked down. I was looking to do a move up to New York City. I was very fortunate to get the offer to um, sub a bunch of shows of, of friends of mine playing on Broadway. Uh, and it just so happened that the world came crashing down and that ha- that is impossible right now. Um, but that's still something that I'm looking to pursue um, and I'll find whatever way to make that work. Uh, and uh, But they're, they're the things we're kind of working on right now, doing the podcast. You know, I'm very thankful that I'm still here teaching at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. I, I'm uh, teaching some music theater literature courses and uh, and accompanying and co-instructing some music theater uh, scene and song masterclass style workshop coursework. Um, so that's, that's kind of what's happening for me and, and how I'm looking at, at moving forward. But I can tell you right now, as soon as as soon as planes are allowed to fly internationally, there's about six places that I'm going to, man. The first one's the UK and then and then Australia is the next one after that. 
Well, I really look forward to it, mate. Catching up for real in the future. And big thank you for coming on the show, on the podcast and sharing some stories about what you've got going on. Thanks, mate. And please stay safe. And hopefully we'll hear a new album out very soon. Thanks, man. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm looking forward to when I can come back and we can do some planning and recording together. Thanks, mate.
So that was James Whiting's Through the Looking Glass from his 2015 release, Hard Mints. And now we'd like to move into a track from local drummer and composer Darren Ferrugia here in Melbourne and local legend. Most people in the music scene would know of Darren and his work. And this is a track from his 2012 recording, Seeds, a beautiful album and one that he recorded over quite a period of time has people like Mike Stern on it and other fantastic musicians. And this is a track from it called Her Neck of the Woods.
Darren Ferrigia's Her Neck of the Woods from his 2012 release, Seeds. And you could just hear such a beautiful drum track on that. His tone, his feel and everything. That's why Darren is considered one of the number one drummers in this country. Well, now we'd like to move into our last track for the second episode of the Australian Jazz and Groove podcast. And one of my favorite Australian jazz musicians and bass players probably one of the most unique bass players in our country, and that is Melbourne bassist Chris Hale. And this is a track that we're going to listen to from his 2012 release entitled Sylvan Coda. And it features musicians like Gian Slater, Nathan Slater, Julian Banks on tenor saxophone, Ben Vanderwell on drums, and many other fine musicians. So here is Chris Hale's Bed-Stuy Lullaby. Thank you. 
So that was Chris Howe's bed Lullaby from his 2015 release, Sylvan Coda. And wow, what a unique bass player Chris is. You could definitely hear it there on that track. Well, we've come to the end of our second episode of the Australian Jazz and Groove podcast. And it's been so good to be able to feature some of these fine musicians that we have here in Australia. Special thank you to Dr. James Whiting coming to us all the way from Las Vegas, taking the time to talk to us about his adventures overseas and also the recording of his 2015 release, Hard Mints. And as we said in episode number one, if you'd like to support these artists, the best way you can do that is to go and buy their music. Search for them on Google. Bandcamp's usually a great place to start. Support them financially so that they can continue to make such fine music and you can show your support in this particularly tough time in which we're all going through. Also, if you'd like to have your music featured here on the Australian Jazz and Groove Podcast, then please send me an email to australianjazzandgroovepodcast at gmail.com and we can organise to be able to make that happen. Thanks again, folks, for listening to the Australian Jazz and Groove Podcast and please be sure to check out the next episode that will be coming out very soon. But for me, it's bye for now.